Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 163, Boston's Favorite Fighting Frenchman. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about Gilbert Dumotier, the Marquis de Lafayette. At just 19 years old, the young Marquis, which is a noble title ranking somewhere between a count and a duke, joined our American Revolution. Commissioned as a major general in 1777, he served with distinction as an aggressive combat commander and a trusted advisor to George Washington. Nearly a half century later, the aging general would return to his beloved United States for a nationwide tour, and his first and urgent destination after arriving on this continent was Boston. In the summer of 1824, he arrived in our city as the greatest celebrity it had ever seen. He was received by Governor William Eustace, former President John Adams, and Mayor Josiah Quincy before launching a national tour. The next spring, he returned, presiding over the dedication of the Bunker Hill Monument on the 50th anniversary of the battle. But before I talk about Boston's favorite fighting Frenchman, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a feature from the Boston Globe magazine on December 6th. When you picture a pipe wrench, the first words you associate with it are probably not technological breakthrough at the forefront of high-tech innovation. But 150 years ago, that's just what the Stilson wrench was. You may not have ever heard of a Stilson wrench before, but you've certainly seen one. Even if you don't personally own a toolbox, you've seen a Stilson wrench emblazoned on the side of a white van as part of a plumbing business's logo. Or you've seen it drawn in the panels of a cartoon, either to indicate that a character is a blue-collar worker or to be employed as a blunt force weapon by either hero or villain. It's the heavy wrench that consists of one long, often L-shaped piece of steel, topped by another L-shaped piece of steel. A thumb screw allows the one on top to be adjusted up or down to accommodate different sized pipes, and where the insides of the short legs of the L meet, there are teeth to grip the pipe. I'll include a sample picture in this week's show notes, and you'll realize that you know exactly what I'm talking about. In the mid-19th century, Boston was quickly adopting one of the most sophisticated systems of indoor plumbing in the country. As we heard in episode 161 about the deadly 1849 cholera epidemic in Boston, we got a solid freshwater source starting in 1848, but the sewage system lagged years behind. Nevertheless, the quick adoption of a municipal water source meant that Boston was one of the most exciting places to be in the plumbing business. And one of the most successful workers in that industry was Daniel Stilson. Stilson had worked in the Charlestown Navy Yard, then as a machinist in the Navy during the Civil War. By the late 1860s, he was an engineer at the J.J. Walworth Corporation in Boston, which the Globe Magazine article describes as the Boston company that brought steam heating systems to the world in the 1840s. It had to create much of what it needed to build these systems, such as valves and fittings and radiators, and, 150 years ago, Stilson's pipe wrench. With the proliferation of different sized pipes, each with uniquely shaped valves and fasteners, Stilson saw an opportunity to create a single tool that could tackle nearly all the jobs in the steam industry, and by extension, in household plumbing. The Globe magazine article continues, He envisioned a tool made expressly for round metal pipe. Its jaws would have angled teeth facing opposite directions, allowing them to grip more effectively than its predecessors. The head would be loose, which would help it clamp down ever more tightly on a pipe when a worker turned its handle, but also easily release. 
Stilson whittled the first prototype of his new pipe wrench out of wood and brought it into work. His bosses were intrigued and had him get the company's workshop to make a steel version of it, then prove it was strong enough to tear a one and a quarter inch pipe. As the story goes, Stilson, who had a sailor's penchant for profanity, swore roundly before going off to test the wrench. He came back with a broken pipe and the wrench intact. It worked. His patent was issued in 1870, and the company let him keep it. The Stilson wrench quickly became one of the best-selling tools in history. Before he died in 1899, Stilson had made about $80,000 in royalties, which would translate to about $2.2 million today. Check out the article for more on Stilson and his wrench, the many knockoff wrenches that were soon being manufactured around Boston and around the country, and what happened to Walworth and similar factories that used to dot the Boston landscape. And for our upcoming event this week, I'm taking you to the main branch of the Boston Public Library, thanks to the BPL's Leventhal Map Center. They'll be presenting a talk titled, Witnesses, Rereading the Cartographies of Dispossession, on January 14th. I know January 14th is still pretty far in the future, but this time of year, a lot of historic sites and organizations are closed, and there's just not much on the calendar. Here's what's in store at the talk, according to the BPL website. The United States achieved its 19th century policy of expansionism across the Midwestern and Western regions of the continent by aggressively enacting policies of dispossession and genocide at the state and federal level against indigenous people. Maps were both the mechanisms for and witnesses to the betrayals of justice that made the violence of dispossession and extermination possible. Margaret Pierce, independent cartographer and faculty associate of the University of Maine, asks us to stand in witness look closely, and listen to these stories in support of indigenous people on whose lands we are guests. Keep in mind that even though the Leventhal Map Center is sponsoring the event, it'll actually be held in the Commonwealth Salon at the Copley branch of the BPL at 6 p.m. We'll have a link to all the information you need, as well as a link to the Globe magazine article about Daniel Stilson's wrench in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 163. And now it's time for this week's main topic. It was well after midnight when the party accompanying the old general arrived in Roxbury in the early hours of August 24th, 1824. He'd been running behind all day, for many days as a matter of fact. It wasn't on account of any feebleness on the general's part. All the portraits of him from the trip portray him as remarkably youthful for a military man who was just weeks away from his 68th birthday, with an unwrinkled forehead rising high above his long, narrow nose, flanked by intelligent brown eyes. And the accounts of his travels make sure to note how energetic he was. One account published by Samuel Knapp says, When someone expressed an apprehension that he might be fatigued by his rapid traveling and the various scenes through which he passed in the course of a day, he quickly replied that he experienced too great pleasure— be sensible of any fatigue. Now, the slow progress of the traveling party was because of the throngs of adoring fans who turned out to gawk at every step of the trip, even in the middle of the night. In 1824, the people of the United States reflected on the upcoming 50th anniversary of the revolution, even as the upcoming presidential election promised to be bitterly partisan and made them wonder if the ideals of the revolution were being lost. The revolutionary generation was fading away ever more quickly. George Washington had been gone for a quarter century. Israel Putnam, Nathaniel Green, Artemis Ward, and Henry Knox, the beloved generals of New England, had all passed away. So had many of the political leaders who came to be known as our founding fathers, 
including the Massachusetts signers of the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, Robert Treat Payne, Elbridge Gerry, and John Hancock. Of that group, only John Adams survived, but he was now 89 years old, widowed, grumpy, and in ill health. With America suffering a crisis of confidence even as it was swept by a wave of revolutionary nostalgia, General Gilbert du Moutier, the Marquis de Lafayette, came to visit the U.S. for the first time in almost 40 years. From the moment he stepped off the ship, he was the biggest celebrity in the nation. Having accepted President James Monroe's invitation to tour America, but declined his offer of passage on an American warship, Lafayette arrived in New York Harbor on a merchant vessel on August 15th. After a solemn reception by revolutionary veterans, NYC threw a four-day non-stop party in the general's honor. General Lafayette's next commitment in America was here in Boston, where he had invitations from former President John Adams, Governor William Eustis, the fellows of Harvard, and other illustrious personages. Naively believing that it would be a relaxing way to see his beloved American countryside, Lafayette decided to travel by carriage from New York through New Haven, New London, Providence, and Pawtucket, to Boston. He wasn't prepared for the reception his tour received. By the time he even reached Harlem, his entourage had swelled to hundreds, with a long line of militia, artillery, politicians, and prominent citizens on horseback trailing behind the elegant carriage that New York had loaned him for the trip. In every hamlet, farmstead, and village he passed through, almost the whole population would turn out at word of his approach— lining the roadsides in hopes of catching a glimpse of the hero they'd learned about in history class, or heard their grandfathers tell half-remembered war stories about around the hearth after dinner. Historian Harlow Unger would say, It was a mystical experience they would relate to their heirs through generations to come. Lafayette had materialized from a distant age, the last leader and hero at a nation's defining moment. They knew they and the world would never see his kind again. The Grand Procession could make good time when they were moving. Knapp commented that he traveled with great rapidity, passing the distance of 30 miles in three hours. He appeared perfectly capable of enduring fatigue and discovered the activity and sprightliness of vigorous manhood. The problem that slowed the procession was Lafayette's very celebrity. In New Haven, he had to spend the night being toasted by the locals, meeting senators and the governor, and of course, touring the Yale campus. He had to stop and mix and mingle again in Saybrook, Connecticut, then again in New London. Having left New York on Friday, he didn't fully traverse Connecticut to the Rhode Island line until Monday morning, and he was in Providence by noon. Along with the politicians, Lafayette made a point of greeting revolutionary veterans at every stop on the tour, and another memoir of the visit published by S. Andrus records a particularly affecting meeting in Providence. After he greeted the crowds lining the street, he arrived at the Rhode Island State House, where young girls in white gowns lined the walk and steps, strewing flower petals at his feet as he mounted the stairs. He was received by the governor and introduced to several officers of the revolution, including a hero from Yorktown that he had known personally. Then he descended the stairs again to mingle with the crowds, and Andrus describes what happened when he was introduced to an 85-year-old militia veteran who'd served under Lafayette, but was now suffering from dementia. Among the rest, the venerable William Russell, now in his 85th year, was introduced to him. The general shook both the veterans' hands in a most affectionate manner, and in an enunciation that slightly marked a foreign accent, said he was extremely happy to take his old friend by the hand once more, as it recalled to his memory the delightful associations of his youth. 
Mr. Russell appeared at first scarcely to comprehend the scene, but in a moment, as if the whole had rushed upon his recollection, he exclaimed in a voice broken by age and still more subdued by feeling, Oh, my dear General, how happy I am to see you once more. I remember well the time I served under you as a volunteer on Rhode Island. The General was evidently touched, and on this, as on several other occasions, the tear started to his eye. If I picture Lafayette as my own grandfather in his later years, perhaps meeting a soldier he had commanded on D-Day, the tears start to my eye as well. Providence is pretty much the first major town where Lafayette did not allow himself to be delayed overnight. The governor of Massachusetts was an old friend, and the general had an invitation to spend Monday night at the governor's house in Roxbury. In 1824, the governor of Massachusetts was William Eustace. After graduating from Harvard at the age of 19, Eustace studied medicine under the tutelage of our favorite patriot, Dr. Joseph Warren. Just three years later, the first shots of our Revolutionary War were fired at Lexington, and Eustace rushed with Warren to the lines to care for the American wounded. Eustace was immediately commissioned as a regimental surgeon, and he again cared for the wounded near the front lines during the Battle of Bunker Hill, where his friend and mentor, Dr. Warren, was killed. After the provincial forces were adopted by Congress, he was a continental surgeon, serving in the New York and New Jersey campaigns, before eventually commanding a hospital near New York. When the young Lafayette arrived in America, they became well acquainted, as they both moved in General Washington's inner circle of advisors. After the war, Eustace lost touch with the Frenchman after he served a term in Congress, then as Secretary of War. After the War of 1812, however, James Madison appointed Eustace as ambassador to the Netherlands. And while he was in Europe, he rekindled his friendship with Lafayette, who was always eager to receive guests from the U.S. It was 1818 by the time Eustace left that post, after which he served another term in Congress and got himself elected governor. As he now waited impatiently for the general to arrive at his stately home in Roxbury, it had been just six years since he had last seen Lafayette, unlike many of the general's old acquaintances who hadn't seen him for 40 years. The governor of Rhode Island and more veterans from the Order of Cincinnatus escorted Lafayette from Providence to the Massachusetts state line. He walked part of the way, so he could personally greet and inspect the companies of militia who lined both sides of the road nearly all the way to Pawtucket. Behind schedule again, he arrived at the Massachusetts state line in the early evening. From this point, a group of aides to Governor Eustace, who'd been waiting since the previous afternoon, took up the duty of escorting the general. As they made their way through southern Massachusetts and ever closer to Roxbury, the streets were again lined with well-wishers at every turn, and progress was slow. The account by Andrus describes what the trip was like. Although it was now evening, at several places on the road large bodies of militia were collected to salute him, and assemblies of ladies and gentlemen were occasionally met who offered this illustrious stranger but respected friend of their country their tribute of applause and affection. He was too sensible of the sincerity and warmth of their felicitations not to delay his journey at several villages and to reciprocate their kind and cordial salutations. It was almost midnight by the time the traveling party got to Dedham, which was then one of the largest towns along the road from Providence to Boston. Despite the late hour, the town was lit up like Christmas, with most of the houses, as Knapp says, handsomely illuminated. As always, most of the population of the town had turned out waiting in the town square for hours to catch a glimpse of the famous general. He dallied long enough to be introduced to the leading families, and then it was on to Roxbury. 
When he finally made it to Roxbury, then still an independent town, it was after 1 a.m. The excited citizenry paid no attention to the time, and no consideration was made for anyone who might be trying to sleep. Lafayette's arrival was marked with a volley of cannon fire from the local militia and a fireworks display launched from a hill in the center of town. Hundreds of people, residents of both Boston and Roxbury, milled about as the general made his way through the crowd, shaking hands as he went. Then, finally, he found himself on the doorstep of Governor Eustace, and Knapp says that the meeting between them was truly affectionate and cordial. The home that Lafayette found himself ushered into is one that co-host Nikki and I are actually quite familiar with. For one summer before starting this podcast, we were docents at Roxbury's Shirley Eustace House. It was built almost a century before, for yet another governor of Massachusetts. You might remember William Shirley from episode 132 as the royal governor of the province who took a gamble on sending an army of Massachusetts volunteers to lay siege to the French-Canadian fortress Louisbourg in the summer of 1745. When against all odds the siege was successful, Shirley used his share of the spoils of war to purchase a 33-acre estate in a little country town called Roxbury, and he built a fine mansion for himself. After Shirley died in 1771, the house was used as a barracks and field hospital by the Continental Army during the Siege of Boston, and it was eventually seized by the Massachusetts Committee on Absentee Estates as Tory property. It passed through several owners before being purchased by William Eustace in 1819. It was there at Eustace Place, now after 2 a.m., where Lafayette finally embraced his old friend and comrade-in-arms. Governor William Eustace threw a grand banquet in honor of the general's arrival in our Commonwealth, which again started sometime after 2 a.m. More than 40 guests were seated at a special table that Madame Eustace had custom-built for the occasion, curving as it wrapped from the Great Hall, around a corner, and into the dining room. Finally, after enduring toasts and repeated applause from the guests at the table and the crowds outside, the general made his excuses and retreated up the grand staircase to the room that had been prepared for him. One has to imagine that he was asleep before his head even hit the pillow. Unfortunately, his night was all too short. If the banquet was thrown at 2 a.m., I have to imagine the earliest he could have gotten away was 2.30 or 3. An 1897 description of the Shirley Eustace estate published in New England Magazine includes this detail from Lafayette's stay. His bodyguard bivouacked on the lawn, and at daybreak the next morning, they waked Lafayette with music. Mrs. Eustace, seeing that all was in readiness for the Marquis's breakfast, went downstairs to look after the wants of the soldiers. She found them sitting on the lawn feasting upon griddle cakes, which were cooked on a large flat soapstone griddle built at the side of the winter fireplace. Out of curiosity, I tried to look up what time Lafayette would have been woken up by his bodyguards playing music. I found a historic sunrise chart, and in the days before daylight savings time, sunrise in Boston on Tuesday, August 24th, 1824, would have been 5.04 a.m. Despite the fact that General Lafayette's eyes were likely closed for at most three hours, Madame Eustace would keep the room he slept in virtually untouched until she died 40 years later. In honor of the visit to Boston by a reproduction of Lafayette's ship La Hermione, the Shirley Eustace House Association did their best to restore the bedroom to that same condition in the summer of 2015, and that's how it remains today. Despite a very abbreviated night's sleep, that Tuesday would mark Lafayette's welcome back to the city of Boston. 
When he arrived in the city with all the pomp and circumstance of a conquering hero, it was actually his seventh trip to the hub, having visited three times in 1778, in 1780, 1781, and 1784. The general had first set foot in Boston almost exactly 46 years before. In late August of 1778, the Admiral D'Estaing, commander of the French fleet that was by then supporting George Washington's Continental Army, sailed into Boston Harbor. You might imagine that a visit from an important Allies flagship would be met with celebration, but the mood among Bostonians was anything but cheerful. That month, the American forces in Rhode Island had begun preparation for a joint campaign with their French allies against the British who still held Newport. On the eve of the battle, with the American forces under Generals Sullivan and Lafayette already in position for the attack, the Admiral sailed out of Newport Harbor to battle an approaching British fleet. Before he found them, a violent storm scattered and damaged his fleet, and he put in at Boston for repairs. In the meantime, comments from the American General Sullivan had reached Boston that characterized the French maneuver as a cowardly abandonment of American forces. By this time, Lafayette was already an American hero, having been wounded at the Battle of Brandywine and suffered alongside the soldiers at Valley Forge. So he was sent to Boston to try and cool tempers and to convince Admiral D'Estaing to return his fleet to Newport. He was only temporarily successful in the first effort and not at all in the latter. In a letter to George Washington dated September 1st, he writes, Now, my dear general, I must give you an account of that journey for which I have paid so dear. The Count d'Estaing arrived the day before in Boston. I found him much displeased at a protest, of which you have heard, and many other circumstances which I have reported to you. I did what I could on the occasion, but I must do the admiral the justice to say that it has not at all diminished his warm desire of serving America. We waited together on the council, General Heath, and General Hancock, and were very well satisfied with them. The last one distinguished himself very much by his zeal on the occasion. Some people in Boston were rather dissatisfied, but when they saw the behavior of the council, Generals Heath and Hancock, they, I hope, will do the same. I, therefore, fear nothing but delays. The masts are very far off, provisions difficult to be provided. The Count d'Estaing was ready to come with his land forces and put himself under General Sullivan's orders, though dissatisfied with the latter. But our new circumstances will alter that design. After the Americans staged a fighting withdrawal from Rhode Island, Lafayette found himself paying a second unexpected visit to Boston less than a month after his first. Tensions between the visiting French soldiers and sailors and the Bostonians had continued to simmer, until they exploded on September 8th. In an article in the Journal of the American Revolution, Christian M. McBurney writes, On September 8th, the tense environment exploded in a tragic, violent confrontation. The French Navy had established a bakery in Boston in order to make bread to feed their sailors and soldiers. Suddenly, heated exchanges between the French soldier bakers and certain Bostonians turned into a riot. Learning of the disturbance, two French officers, apparently bringing French grenadiers with them, rushed to the scene to end it. Chevalier Grégoire de Saint-Sauveur, a 28-year-old lieutenant of the Tonant, and one-legged Lieutenant Georges-René Pleville de Pelay, one of Distang's favorites. The two men succeeded in diffusing tensions, but on their return they were set upon by some 50 men, clubbed brutally in their heads, and left for dead. Within a week, Saint-Sauveur, who'd been viciously struck above the right eye, died from his injuries. Today, you can see a monument to St. Sevier in the front courtyard of King's Chapel. 
Learning of the unrest, Lafayette returned to Boston, writing to Washington on September 24th, As everything is perfectly quiet, and General Sullivan is persuaded that I may with all safety go to Boston, I'm going to undertake a short journey towards that place. The Admiral has several times expressed a desire of conversing with me. He's also thrown out some wishes that something might be done towards securing Boston, but it seems he always refers to a conversation for further explanation. My stay will be short, as I don't like towns in time of war when I may be about a camp. Again, Lafayette the hero visited Boston, and again he smoothed things over between the French and Americans. He was only in town for a few days, before riding on to Washington's headquarters and requesting a leave of absence to attend to family matters back in France. Having been granted leave, he found himself back in Boston for a third time in December of 1778. He waited for a ship that would take him home, along with dispatches from Congress to the government of France. During his few weeks in Boston, he was briefly introduced to Abigail Adams, little knowing that he would soon meet her husband on the other side of the Atlantic. The next time Lafayette visited Boston, he arrived on the grand frigate La Hermione, bearing news that would prove the salvation of the American cause. Thanks to the general's diplomatic efforts in France, alongside Ben Franklin and John Adams, a massive French fleet would be sent to America, alongside an army of 6,000 men. Boston greeted Lafayette with jubilation, though he only tarried here briefly before returning to the field with the Continental Army. In the coming months, the Continentals, with assistance from the French and due in no small part to Lafayette's leadership, finally decisively defeated the British Army at Yorktown. It was all over but the negotiations. On his way back to France in December of 1781, he was given a reception at Faneuil Hall and the general's response to Boston's praise of him makes clear the affection he'd begun to feel for our city. Gentlemen, the past obligations I've been under to the inhabitants of this capital and the new favor they now confer upon me have impressed my heart with the most lively sense of attachment and gratitude. To have been admitted among you from an early period in the defense of the cause of liberty will forever be the happiest circumstance of my life but it becomes more particularly so when it's so kindly remembered by those who first began the noble contest and who have ever since been so conspicuous in its support. Nothing could induce me to leave this continent even for a short period before I had the satisfaction to see my friends in this town. Be pleased, gentlemen, to accept my most respectful acknowledgments to your good wishes. The height of my ambition would be to gratify the affectionate sentiments which forever devote me to this metropolis. After a few years back in Paris, he made one more visit to the United States before the close of the 18th century. In 1784, he toured all 13 states and found himself in Boston in time to celebrate the anniversary of the British surrender at Yorktown. Lafayette arrived in Watertown on Friday, October 15th, and spent the evening dining with his fellow Continental officers. After drinking a number of patriotic toasts, a parade was assembled to see the general through Roxbury and into Boston. In both towns, his arrival was heralded by artillery salutes and the ringing of church bells. As they passed the Liberty Stump, where Boston's Liberty Tree had once stood, the company gave three great cheers, then delivered Lafayette to his accommodations at the Bunch of Grapes Tavern. For the next few days, Lafayette entertained guests at the tavern, then on the anniversary day, he made his way to the old state house, which of course was not yet old then, at the invitation of Governor John Hancock. There, he was saluted by both houses of the legislature, then paraded the Faneuil Hall as the town artillery gave a 13-gun salute, which was answered by 13 guns on Castle Island, then 13 more from a frigate on the harbor. 
At Faneuil Hall, he dined with the governor, lieutenant governor, the legislative leadership, leading merchants, clergy, French gentlemen, and continental officers. After dinner, the party drank 13 toasts, each of which was followed by a 13-gun salute. An account of the visit by John Foster says, It ought to be mentioned that all the wine and fragments of provision of every kind, which were left at the hall, were carefully collected and sent to the almshouse in jail, that the hearts even of the miserable in confinement and distress might expand upon this joyous occasion. During this visit, Lafayette was gifted a portrait of Washington by the town of Boston. He was granted birthright citizenship in Massachusetts, and he received an honorary degree from Harvard. Two days after the Yorktown anniversary celebration, Lafayette took his leave of Boston, and this time he wouldn't return for 40 years. The intervening period in Lafayette's life is a bit too complex to relate in this podcast. Suffice it to say that he would also become a hero of the French Revolution, but the outcomes weren't entirely happy for the Marquis and his family. When President Monroe convinced him to return to the U.S. in 1824, Boston's Board of Aldermen knew Lafayette would visit Boston, but they didn't know whether he would sail here directly from France or whether he'd alight somewhere else and come here over land. Thus, they began planning for either scenario. In July, the Common Council ordered the aldermen to form a committee to make suitable arrangements for the reception of General Lafayette, should his arrival in the United States be at this port and to prepare and present to him an address on his landing. Ordered further that if the general should land at any other port and intend to make a visit to the city, the above committee be authorized to provide for his accommodation during his residence here, and to adopt all other measures which they may deem expedient to extend to him the hospitality of this metropolis, and to extend the feelings of gratitude which the whole body of its citizens entertain for the splendid services, ardent patriotism, and private worth of the illustrious visitor. So, on three hours sleep, General Lafayette would be the recipient of the hospitality of this metropolis for the seventh time, beginning on August 24th, 1824. At nine o'clock that morning, a cavalcade of 1,200 horsemen formed on Boston Common. Knapp says, It was very numerous and consisted of the citizens of Boston of all ranks and classes on horseback. Proceeding to the extreme southerly part of the city near the line of Roxbury, they were joined by the mayor and aldermen and members of the Common Council, the Society of Cincinnati, a great number of public civil characters, and strangers of distinction, all in carriages, by the general and field officers of the 1st Division of Militia, and officers of the Army and Navy of the United States. An innumerable concourse of people on foot lined the sidewalks of the spacious street where the procession was to be formed, the entrance to the city from Roxbury, and fortunately named Washington Street. The cavalcade proceeded all the way to Eustace Place, where the governor, the general, and his escorts had finished breakfast and were waiting to depart. They all rode the short distance to the Boston town line together, where the official delegation headed by Mayor Josiah Quincy was waiting for them. I should mention that this was Mayor Josiah Quincy III, since there were at least five Josiah Quincys over the years, three of whom would be mayors of Boston. This third Josiah was first to be mayor, and he greeted Lafayette by saying, Sir, the citizens of Boston welcome you on your return to the United States. Mindful of your early zeal in the cause of American independence, grateful for your distinguished share in the perils and glories of its achievements. When urged by a generous sympathy you first landed on these shores, you found a people engaged in an arduous and eventful struggle for liberty, with apparently inadequate means, and amidst dubious omens. 
After a lapse of nearly half a century, you find the same people prosperous beyond all hope and all precedent, their liberty secure, sitting in its strength without fear and without reproach. In your youth, you join the standard of three millions of people raised in an unequal and uncertain conflict. In your advanced age, you return and are met by ten millions of people, their descendants, whose hearts throng hither to greet your approach and rejoice in it. Accept then, sir, in the sincere spirit in which it is offered, this simple tribute to your virtues. Again, sir, the citizens of Boston bid you welcome to the cradle of American independence and to scenes consecrated with the blood shed by the earliest martyrs in its cause. Lafayette stood up in his carriage and delivered this response in slightly accented English. To the mayor and people of Boston, the emotions of love and gratitude which I have been accustomed to feel on my entering this city have ever mingled with a sense of religious reverence for the cradle of American, and let us hope it will hereafter be said, of universal liberty. What must be, sir, my feelings, at the blessed moment when, after so long an absence, I find myself again surrounded by the good citizens of Boston, where I am so affectionately, so honorably welcomed, not only by my old friends, but by several successive generations, where I can witness the prosperity, the immense improvements that have been the just reward of a noble struggle, virtuous morals, and truly republican institutions. I beg of you, Mr. Mayor, gentlemen of the City Council, and all of you, beloved citizens of Boston, to accept the respectful and warm thanks of a heart, which has for nearly half a century been particularly devoted to your illustrious city. With that, a massive parade formed up, led by companies of artillery, light infantry, rangers, and fusiliers. Then came the band and city and state dignitaries and carriages. Following them was the guest of honor, Lafayette, in a huge barouche carriage drawn by four beautiful white horses. Bringing up the rear came the general's son and other members of his entourage, followed by ten carriages of revolutionary veterans— judges and legislators, militia officers, and finally, the cavalcade of 1,200 citizens. The parade started up Washington Street as an artillery salute rang out from Dorchester Heights, where Henry Knox's guns had driven the British from Boston. As they traversed Boston Neck, they passed the ruin of a revolutionary-era earthwork, over which was constructed a triumphant arch designed by Charles Bullfinch. It was draped with flags and bunting, and this poem was on a scroll suspended over the roadway. Welcome, Lafayette. The fathers in glory shall sleep that gathered with thee to the fight, but the sons will eternally keep the tablet of gratitude bright. We bow not the neck, we bend not the knee, but our hearts, Lafayette, we surrender to thee. When they passed the liberty stump where Lafayette had huzzahed in 1784, there was another arch. This one bore the motto, 1776, Washington and Lafayette, a republic not ungrateful. The procession wended its way through Milk, Broad, State, Court, and Tremont Streets. They turned onto Boylston Street, then crossed Boston Common, where they were flanked by almost 3,000 public school students, the girls all in white dresses, and the boys in white pantaloons with blue suspenders. Finally arriving in front of the State House, the procession was greeted by a 13-gun salute from a battery on the Common, which was answered by a similar salute from the Charlestown Navy Yard. Lafayette was ushered into the Senate Chamber where he was greeted by the legislature and the executive council. His old friend William Eustace was waiting to welcome him again, this time on behalf of the Commonwealth. Even though Eustace and Lafayette had been acquainted for over 45 years, Eustace tapped into Lafayette's mythical status as a hero of another era. 
He said, Sir, our friend, in the name of the government and in behalf of the citizens of Massachusetts, I have the honor to greet you with a cordial and affectionate welcome. We thank God that he has been pleased to preserve you through the scenes of peril and suffering which have distinguished your patriotic and eventful life, and that we are indulged with this occasion of renewing to you our grateful acknowledgments for the important services which you have rendered to our common country. In the last surviving Major General of the American Revolutionary Army, we recognize a benefactor and friend from a distant and gallant nation, who, inspired by a love of liberty, subjected himself in his youth to the toils and hazards of a military life in support of our rights. Under our illustrious Washington, you were instrumental in establishing the liberties of our country, while your gallantry in the field secured to yourself an imperishable renown. With the enjoyment of the blessings of independence, we shall never cease to associate the name of Lafayette, and our prayer to heaven will be for his health and prosperity. This time, Lafayette's response was as simple as it was heartfelt. Sir, when in the name of the people and government of this state, your excellency is pleased so kindly to welcome an American veteran, I am proud to share the enjoyments of such a reception with my revolutionary companions and brother soldiers. Sir, I am delighted with what I see. I am oppressed with what I feel, but I depend on you as an old friend to do justice to my sentiments. After the formal exchange of greetings, Lafayette spent time in the Senate chamber shaking hands with dignitaries. From time to time, you'd recognize the face of a fellow Continental veteran in the crowd, and instead of a handshake, the comrade-in-arms would receive a hearty embrace. Knapp's account says, The scene was inexpressibly affecting. There was not a heart untouched, not a cheek unmoistened by the falling tear. To weep then was not weakness. It was proof of gratitude and of a generous feeling, which is an honor to human nature. When all the officials had been properly received, Lafayette went out into Beacon Street in front of the State House to greet the assembled public. Then he went for toasts at the Exchange Coffee House and finally called on Dorothy Quincy Hancock, Governor John Hancock's widow. Finally, he retreated to the residence that had been set aside for his use at the corner of Beacon and Park. The next morning, he accompanied Mayor Quincy to Cambridge, where future Mayor Josiah Quincy IV was graduating from Harvard. Among the throngs who came out to greet him was Harvard senior Charles Francis Adams, John Quincy's son and John's grandson. Of the general, he wrote in his diary, The enthusiasm of the people with respect to him is astonishing. He was almost prevented from moving yesterday, and today there was nothing but a sea of heads to be seen. It was rather affecting, as it moves the very noblest feelings in the human heart. The services, the age, and the patriotism of this man receive no more than their due reward. On Thursday, Lafayette attended a ceremony at Faneuil Hall. On Friday, there was another reception at the State House. Then he reviewed the troops on Dorchester Heights, conjuring the memory of his beloved Washington and his brother-in-arms, Henry Knox, both of whom were now deceased. On Saturday, he dined with a huge contingent from the Society of Cincinnatus. That Sunday, however, there was one more important date to keep with the living. John Adams was now nearly 90 years old. His body was quickly failing, and his beloved Abigail had passed away nearly six years earlier. Despite all that, however, his mind was still sharp, and he was eager to see his old friend from France. When word of Lafayette's arrival in New York had reached Peacefield, the Adams estate in Quincy, President Adams wrote a note to Lafayette dated August 22nd. My dear General, 
I send this letter by my two grandsons, George Washington Adams and Charles Francis Adams, to congratulate you on your happy arrival in your country after so long an absence. It should be noted that among Lafayette's retinue on the 1824 trip was his son, George Washington Lafayette. Our first president was a popular namesake. There is not a man in America who more sincerely rejoices in your happiness and in the burst of joy which your presence has diffused through this whole continent than myself. I would wait on you in person, but the total decrepitude and imbecility of 89 years has rendered it impossible for me to ride even so far as Governor Eustace's to enjoy that happiness. I pray you to appoint a day when you will do me the honor to pass the day with me in my cottage in our lapidary town of Quincy with a few of your friends. Our fellow citizens have done themselves honor by the ardor of their zeal to do you all the honors in their power, and you will find it universal throughout the nation. I am, sir, unalterably your sincere friend and most humble servant. After getting saluted in Boston, Lafayette responded on August 26th, My dear friend, On my arrival in this beloved place, it was my intention to hasten to Quincy and embrace you Thursday morning. You know the circumstances which have delayed this eagerly wished-for gratification. There will be a compensation in the pleasure to see your son arrived on next Sunday. Receive the affectionate respects of your old friend, Lafayette. Though John Quincy Adams, then Secretary of State and soon to be the President-elect, didn't make it to Quincy in time, Lafayette and his party chose Sunday, August 29th, to visit Peacefield in hopes of meeting him. Charles Francis Adams, who had just turned 17 and was entering his senior year at Harvard, recorded his impressions of the dinner. You can see in this diary entry the kernel of a historian's interest, and Charles Francis would become a historian in his own right just a few years later. The general arrived at about half-past two, attended by his son, Mr. Levasseur, and his secretary, Mr. Colden, and Mr. Quincy, and Governor Eustace arrived soon after. The Marquis met my grandfather with pleasure, and I thought with some surprise, because really I do not think he expected to see him quite so feeble as he is. It struck me that he was affected somewhat in that manner. Otherwise, the meeting was a pleasant one. Grandfather exerted himself more than usual and, as to conversation, appeared exactly as he ever has. I think he is rather more striking now than ever, certainly more agreeable, as his asperity of temper is worn away. I had the honor of an introduction to the Marquis, and that was all. Governor Eustace is a man who appears to be very well satisfied with himself and with everything about him. He has gained an elevation which he wished, and I presume is content. He is a singular man in his manner, but not altogether unpleasant when he makes any exertion. The dinner passed off without difficulty. I did not get seated to my taste, consequently spent my time rather stupidly. How many people in this country would have been delighted with my situation at this moment, to see three distinguished men dining at the same table, with the reflections all brought up concerning the old days of the revolution, in which they were conspicuous actors, and for their exertions in which the country is grateful. It is a subject which can excite much thought, as it embraces the high feelings of human nature. The presence of my father would have been additional pleasure, but he did not arrive, and it is now probable that he will not for some days. My grandfather appeared considerably affected, and soon rose after dinner was over. He details how time-consuming and demanding it was for the general to greet all the well-wishers of Quincy before departing, then reflects, I would wish to recollect the scene of this day, as the actors will soon depart from this busy scene, and memory only will bring to life their looks, their tones, their language. 
All these things in illustrious men are worth recollecting, and it is one of the most desirable things in great distinction to be set up in this way to the observation of the world. On Monday, the General reviewed an assemblage of over 6,000 militia on Boston Common, and then on Tuesday, August 31st, he departed Boston for New Hampshire, and then his wider American tour. He made a loop that took him through New Hampshire, western Massachusetts, and Connecticut, completing his first tour of New England. In all, he would spend about 13 months traveling around the United States. As he began the southern leg of his tour, he stopped at Mount Vernon in October to pay his respects at the tomb of George Washington. Then, in November, he visited Monticello to rekindle his friendship with Thomas Jefferson, whom he had also known in Europe. And with that, I think it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's podcast. Liberty & Co. sells unique products inspired by the American Revolution, many of which have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. One of the unique products that Liberty & Co. offers is an exclusive Candles of the Revolution series. Experts say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory. So imagine remembering the Boston Tea Party through a candle that smells just like black tea, or putting yourself in the middle of Paul Revere's ride with a candle that smells like midnight fog. If you've been enjoying the story of Lafayette's American tour, you might like the Founding President's Candle Collection. It includes three candles that will let you follow in Lafayette's footsteps. One will transport you to Peacefield, one takes you to Mount Vernon, and one evokes the memory of Jefferson's Monticello. You can get 20% off any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use the discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. Returning to our story, Lafayette arrived in Virginia in time to celebrate the anniversary of the surrender at Yorktown in Yorktown. Then he settled into Washington, D.C. for most of the winter. While he had missed seeing young John Quincy Adams in Quincy, he had an opportunity to see him in Washington. The younger Adams was caught in a bitterly contested presidential election, and neither he nor opponent Andrew Jackson could secure an electoral college majority. Finally, on February 9, 1825, the House of Representatives broke the stalemate, pronouncing Adams the president-elect. That evening, Lafayette watched as Jackson shook Adams' hand and conceded the election. A few days later, he wrote to the elder Adams back in Quincy to offer his congratulations and anticipate his return to Boston. My dear sir, receive the most cordial congratulations from an old friend of the father and the son, who on this occasion feels much for you and for him, and who will be happy on the Bunker Hill anniversary to express in person the patriotic and individual sentiments which have been known to you for near half a century. Most truly and affectionately, your old friend, Lafayette. Within a month, the weather had cleared enough for the general to continue his tour of the southern and western states, beginning in Baltimore, then Virginia again, and on to the Carolinas. He traveled from Georgia, across Alabama, then up the Mississippi River from New Orleans through the Deep South and looped through the Appalachians. By mid-May, it was warm enough for him to come back to the Northeast, eventually arriving in Boston in June after crossing Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. On June 16th, the governor welcomed Lafayette back to Massachusetts, though it was a bittersweet greeting. In the months he'd been gone, the general's old friend William Eustace had passed away, as had his predecessor and fellow veteran John Brooks so it was now Levy Lincoln Jr. who welcomed him on behalf of the Commonwealth. 
Lafayette replied, in part, In the long and happy series of visits through the several parts of the Union to which you've been pleased to allude, Bunker Hill has ever been my polar star, and I now rejoice to be arrived in time to join on the grand half-century jubilee with my companions in arms as being together the representatives of the early and unshaken devotion of our revolutionary army of the patriotic wishes of such of us as are still on this land, of the dying prayers of those of us who are no more. And permit me here, sir, most deeply to mourn the recent loss of my two friends, your respected predecessors, who had so heartily joined in the late welcome. The next day was the 50th anniversary of the battle, and Lafayette would play the role not only of the general, national hero, and international celebrity, but also of Master Mason. He'd been inducted into Freemasonry in 1775, and that membership had helped to open many doors during his first visit to America, including providing common ground with Mason George Washington. Now he would be called upon to use the practical skills of a Mason one last time. But first, as always, came the parade. Forming up in front of the State House, the parade was led by 16 companies of soldiers, followed by carriages with 40 veterans of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Behind them came about 200 more aging Revolutionary War veterans from around the state. One of them, Solomon Smith, a Minuteman who fought at Lexington and Concord, walked 24 miles from Acton to Charlestown to take part in the ceremony. He was 72 years old. After the veterans came a column of Bunker Hill Monument Association supporters and donors. Up next was the column of Masons, who were rivaled only by the military for the honor of being the most numerous attendees. The Andrus account describes how this section of the procession was very splendid and exceeded 2,000 of the fraternity with all their jewels and regalia. After the Masons and their band came a contingent of clergy and then finally the guest of honor, riding in a coach pulled by four white horses. Behind him was the carriage where his son and entourage rode, then vast numbers of politicians and dignitaries from Massachusetts and around the country another group of uniformed sailors and soldiers, and finally, a long column of citizens who followed the parade to Charlestown. The author of the Andrus account says that the parade was so massive that its head was already across the Charles River Bridge before the tail end had left Boston Common. And of course, it almost goes without saying that thousands of spectators turned out in hopes of glimpsing the famous general. Andrus says, All the streets, the houses to their roofs, and in some instances to chimney tops, in every situation on which a footing could be obtained for a prospect of the procession, were filled with a condensed mass of well-dressed, cheerful-looking persons, of all sexes and denominations, many of whom had occupied their stations for several hours, and who, at appropriate places, spontaneously rent the air with joyous and orderly acclamations, while the ladies displayed their tokens of smiles and waving handkerchiefs as the procession passed, particularly when the guest was in sight. When they had all arrived at the summit of Bunker Hill, the Masons arranged themselves in squared ranks around the foundation stones that had already been prepared. Then the Masonic rituals began, with various officers bringing forward vases of corn, wine, and oil, then the architectural implements of the Masons' craft. Grandmaster Abbott and General Lafayette ceremonially squared, leveled, and plumbed the foundation stones. Then a time capsule was brought out and deposited in a hollow spot in the stone. Sealed inside the lead box were accounts of the battle by the Provincial Congress and General Howe, a map, old coins, medals, a silver plaque, and even a small fragment of Plymouth Rock. 
the lead box was coated in wax and placed into a second lead box, which was in turn filled up with pitch and soldered shut. The cornerstone was lowered onto the foundation, with another recess fitting over the time capsule. With the cornerstone in place, the Grandmaster poured the corn, oil, and wine over it, then formally charged the Master Building to erect the monument on the true principles of masonry. The Master Builder formally accepted this charge, and then the Masonic ceremony was over. A 13-gun salute was fired from Bunker Hill and answered from Copse Hill in the North End. When the applause finally died down, the crowd moved to the northeastern face of the hill, where a stage had been erected for the event. Congressman Daniel Webster, who would later serve as a senator and then as Secretary of State, was the keynote speaker of the day. He was already well-known as an orator, and as president of the Bunker Hill Monument Association, he was presiding over the day's activities. His address at Bunker Hill that day is considered one of the finest of his career. It opened with a reflection on the enormous crowd of 100,000 spectators who'd gathered, perhaps the largest that had ever attended any speech given in New England up to that point. He went on to extol the history and values of Boston, of Massachusetts, and of America. Finally, he painted the Battle of Bunker Hill as a turning point in American history. He praised the assembled veterans and mourned the casualties both of the battle and of time. After giving a detailed description of the battle and the death of Joseph Warren, Webster turned and addressed the celebrated guest in the crowd before him. Information of these events circulating through Europe at length reached the ears of one who now hears me. He has not forgotten the emotion which the fame of Bunker Hill and the name of Warren excited in his youthful breast. Sir, we are assembled to commemorate the establishment of great public principles of liberty and to do honor to the distinguished dead. The occasion is too severe for eulogy to the living. But, sir, your interesting relation to this country, the peculiar circumstances which surround you and surround us, call on me to express the happiness which we derive from your presence and aid in this solemn commemoration. Fortunate, fortunate man, with what measure of devotion will you not thank God for the circumstances of your extraordinary life? You are connected with both hemispheres and with two generations. Heaven saw fit to ordain that the electric spark of liberty should be conducted through you from the new world to the old, and we who are now here to perform this duty of patriotism have all of us long ago received it in charge from our fathers to cherish your name and your virtues. You will account it an instance of your good fortune, sir, that you crossed the seas to visit us at a time which enables you to be present at this solemnity. You now behold the field, the renown of which reached you in the heart of France and caused a thrill in your ardent bosom. You see the lines of the little redoubt thrown up by the incredible diligence of Prescott defended to the last extremity by his lion-hearted valor, and within which the cornerstone of our monument has now taken its position. You see where Warren fell, and where Parker, Gardner, McCleary, Moore, and other early patriots fell with him. Those who survived that day and whose lives have been prolonged to the present hour are now around you. Some of them you have known in the trying scenes of the war. Behold, they now stretch forth their feeble arms to embrace you. Behold, they raise their trembling voices to invoke the blessing of God on you and yours forever. Sir, you have assisted us in laying the foundation of this edifice. You have heard us rehearse with our feeble commendation the names of departed patriots. Sir, monuments and eulogy belong to the dead. We give them this day to Warren and to his associates. On other occasions, they've been given to your more immediate companions in arms, to Washington, to Green, to Gates, Sullivan, and Lincoln. Sir, we have become reluctant to grant these, our highest and last honors, further. 
we would gladly hold them yet back from this little remnant of that immortal band. Illustrious as you are in your merits, yet far, oh, very far distant be the day when any inscription shall bear your name or any tongue pronounce its eulogy. When Webster concluded, about 4,000 invited guests retired to an enormous tent with 12 specially built 400-foot-long tables for dinner and drinks. Guests drank 13 toasts, concluding with a special toast by Daniel Webster in the name of Lafayette. The general rose and responded, Gentlemen, I will not longer trespass on your time than to thank you, in the name of my revolutionary companions in arms and myself, for the testimonies of esteem and affection, I may say of filial affection, which have been bestowed upon us on the memorable celebration of this anniversary day, and to offer our fervent prayers for the preservation of that republican freedom, equality, and self-government, that blessed union between the states of the Confederacy for which we have fought and bled, and on which rest the hopes of mankind. Permit me to propose the following sentiment. Bunker Hill and the holy resistance to oppression which has already enfranchised the American hemisphere. The next half-century jubilee's toast shall be to enfranchised Europe. Lafayette remained in Boston for three more days, making the social rounds and even calling one last time on his old friend John Adams. The following Tuesday morning, he departed to complete his American tour, doing one more lap around New England before making his way down the East Coast to Washington. He left for France on September 7th. While he was in Boston, however, Lafayette had more on his mind than simply the ceremony on Bunker Hill and his many social calls. With his lifelong admiration for the ideals of the American Revolution and his affection for the American people, the aging general decided that he would like to be buried in American soil. Rather than planning to have his body brought back to the States after his death, he instead decided to take the American soil with him to France. In the book Lafayette the Boy General, John Kaminsky says, Originally, Lafayette had planned his burial in soil brought back from each of the 24 states he had visited in 1824 and 1825. Unfortunately, toward the end of his American tour, the steamship mechanic carrying Lafayette, his entourage, and the soil that Lafayette had collected sunk in the Ohio River. The next best thing Lafayette thought was soil from Bunker Hill. Before leaving Boston, Lafayette, or more likely members of his entourage, gathered soil from Bunker Hill. I've always pictured it as filling a large wooden barrel, but in an article in the Journal of the American Revolution, John Happ describes it as being in a large trunk. When the general passed away nine years later at the age of 76, he was laid to rest next to his wife in the family plot in a Paris cemetery. George Washington Lafayette covered his father's casket with the soil they brought home from Charlestown in 1825, ensuring that a tiny piece of America would always abide in Paris. John Happ's article notes, Since about the 1850s, an American flag has stood over the grave. There are also various other humble honorifics marking his grave by historical societies from Massachusetts to Virginia and beyond. And periodically there sits a large bouquet of fresh flowers on the site. We have a curious historic detail attesting that the cemetery is indeed inconspicuous. During the Nazi occupation of Paris in World War II, there was a Jewish hospital located just across the street from the cemetery. One can imagine the terror that hospital suffered during the occupation. Yet the church grounds, notably the American flag within, remained undisturbed during the Nazi occupation of Paris from 1940 to 1944. 
When America entered the Great War, many in the U.S. viewed it as an opportunity to finally pay back the debt our nation owed to Lafayette and to France. When General Blackjack Pershing arrived in Paris in the spring of 1917 in command of the American Expeditionary Force, one of his first actions was to bring his staff officers to Lafayette's tomb to pay their respects. A colonel named Charles Stanton offered a now-legendary salute. America has joined with the Allied powers, and what we have of blood and treasure are yours. Therefore it is that with loving pride we drape the colors in tribute of respect to this citizen of your great republic. And here and now, in the presence of the illustrious dead, we pledge our hearts and our honor in carrying this war to a successful issue. Lafayette, we are here. To learn more about the Marquis de Lafayette's time in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 163. We'll have plenty of primary sources, including the accounts of Lafayette's visit published by Knapp, Andrus, and Foster. We'll have several letters and diary entries from the Adams Papers, illustrating the relationships that Lafayette had with John and Abigail Adams, his regard for John Quincy Adams, and the awe with which Charles Francis Adams witnessed the dinner at Peacefield. We'll also have letters between Lafayette and Jefferson, as well as wartime letters from Lafayette to Washington that help illustrate the tensions that brought him to Boston in 1778. We'll have links to city records related to Lafayette's 1784 and 1824 visits to Boston, the text of Daniel Webster's address at Bunker Hill, and links to all the articles I quoted from. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the story of the Stilson Pipe Wrench, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs>